Hairy London by Stephen Palmer. Narrated by R.D. Watson. Episode 4 I see, she said it, in the way that meant she did not approve. I admit I did it on the spur of the moment, he said. But as a member of the Suicide Club, I cannot now revoke my word. He leaned close and took her hand. You mean so much to me, Stacia, but I do not seem to be able to explain why. Perhaps that is why our marriage has faded. Do not rebuke me. I am a philosopher by trade and by inclination. With you at my side to provide vital feminine insight, I will win this wager. She smiled, and at last it seemed genuine. I'm glad to hear that. You are a fool sometimes, Konyukop. How you got into philosophy, I don't know. But anyway, it seems I have no choice but to follow your lead. Suppose it rekindled our marriage. Would you not be truly glad? She hesitated, then replied, I suppose I would. Then we will take our season, and we will answer Pantomile's challenge. We will discover what love is and broadcast our wisdom to the world. And that will make it a better place, he laughed. You know, I've always wanted to be a philanthropist. Will we use the house as our base? He looked at her. You mean, will we travel? She nodded. I really do not know. It's an open-ended wager. Perhaps we will explore uncharted regions of human psyche, as they say Mr. Freud does, and yet never leave these four walls. Or perhaps we shall travel up to the southern tip of Hindu. What matters is that you're at my side and I'm at yours. I took on this wager as one half of a couple. I believe only a couple can discover what love is. And that is why I called you over to Bedwood's house. She sighed. Indeed you did, and very late in the evening. I must say that thin waif, Chwinfear Bedwoods, needs to know what love is. Do not drag her into this. She's a luckless specimen. Our season must be our season. We shall see what fate brings us. Can you cope? How many times have you told me you don't believe in fate? Yes, yes, yes. It was a figure of speech. No more. She shook her head, and they both laughed. Cornucope rose to pick up the breakfast trays, but as he did, his gaze flickered across the sash window that looked out over Hampstead Heath. Great oats! he cried. What is it? He ran to the window and stared out. East Heath Road, the hedge behind it, and the entirety of the heath behind that, were covered in hair, a thick, cap of blonde hair that shimmered and waved like July wheat in the sun. He turned to her and said, Everything is hairy. At once he ran down the stairs and headed for his study, where lay one of the new-fangled telegraphical sedatikai that Grabiander Tune had brought back from Jaziristan. He'd raised the device to his mouth, placing one of its tail feathers in his ear. Get me Bedwood's house, he told the operator. The device parroted his words. Then he heard a tinny voice. Connecting you to Bedwood's house. There was a click, a buzz, then a scratching sound. 
Hello. He cleared his throat. Is that uh, <clears throat> Gentleman Smythe? It is indeed, sir. Is that Mr. Weatherby? What the devil's going on, Smythe? The whole place is covered in hair. Haven't you seen the morning papers, sir? All of London is covered. The government are warning people to stay indoors. Cornucope stood up straight. I am a member of the Suicide Club. Nobody tells me to stay indoors. I was just repeating what the government said, sir. Yes, yes, quite. Listen, Smythe, how many of us chaps have made it to Bedwood's house? None, sir. It is just me and Lady Bedwood's. Cornucope gasped. Then nobody can travel? It would seem not, sir. Sit tight, Smythe. There'll be someone along soon enough. Until then, do not do anything rash. If you feel a panic coming on, there is a secret whiskey tot in the back of the three-eyed idol of Katmandu. You know the one I mean? I do, sir. You have my permission to swig from it. Until later, Smythe. Take good care, sir. The connection closed with a click. Cornucope put the Siddiquai back into its cage, then walked to the bottom of the stairs and shouted, Stacia, London is hairy. We must go out to investigate. Wear something stout. Jeremy stared at the woman's visage. She stared back at him. Great heavens, he said. Who the devil are you? I, sir, am Valentina Moondust, and I would ask you not to speak to me in that tone of voice. Jeremy's mouth remained open. The woman was pretty, damn pretty, with big dark eyes and black hair down to her shoulders, if rather too forward for his liking. He took a deep breath and said, You've taken a risk coming out into the street without a chaperone. This place is deadly, ma'am. A chaperone? Valentina replied. She sounded almost scornful. Times are changing. Some women have their own minds, you know. Their own ways. Yes, quite, Jeremy said, not a little embarrassed. The woman must be some sort of suffering activist. Inconvenient. Though I do thank you for rescuing me, Valentina continued. I lost my footing, and, as you may know, once you are beneath the hair, it is difficult to resurface. That fate has yet to befall me. But I'm glad to make your acquaintance. I'm Jeremy Pantomile, independently wealthy of Guff Square. I'm heading to Fleet Street to locate aerial transport, and I'd be happy to deliver you to your home. Where do you intend going? she asked. To the Royal Institute. That is where I am going. We should fly together. Jeremy chuckled. Your husband would object, I'm quite certain. I am unmarried, sir. Had you not noticed? Jeremy glanced away, uncomfortable with the turn of the conversation. After a moment's pause, he said, Let's head for Fleet Street, then. I'm sure I'd be glad to accompany you to the Institute. She smiled at him, as if disbelieving his assertion. Jeremy shook his head. Dash it! So difficult to lie to a woman. I will walk in your wake, she said. Lead on, Jeremy. He ignored the familiar use of his forename, took a deep breath and began walking. I find this rhythmical method works well, 
he explained. It tires the leg muscles, but not so much they're left flabby and inutile. I will follow suit. Yes, it is not so difficult. In Fleet Street, they saw no aerial vehicles, but soon Jeremy heard a hissing that spoke of one of the old steam engines beloved of the Bismarckian potentates, and before he knew it, a Teutonic legerdemain hoved into view, piloted by a crusty old whammer with a Union Jack sticking out of his helmet. One of ours, Jeremy said. Sir, he called, waving at the old codger. Sir, we need a ride to the Royal Institute. I have monies. The legerdemain hung in the air, enshrouded by clouds of steam. Through the hissing, clanking din, the old man called down. I'm headed in that direction. Allow me to let down a rope ladder. But wait, is that a lady? I can climb a rope ladder, Valentina said. Uh, this lady is the adventuresome type, Jeremy explained. Be of good will and allow her egress, dear fellow. Oh, very well. Climb aboard. Once aboard, Jeremy looked around. The vehicular spoon in which they stood was spacious, with brass pistons pumping at the railings and a central jardinier in which the fuel grew. The old man, Curve Anecdote by name, though terse by inclination, refused to allow Valentina to make payment, insisting that such an act would be dishonorable. Valentina withdrew, annoyed. Jeremy looked out across the city as Curve piloted the ledger domain. Though he could make out certain landmarks, they were muted, fuzzy, as if the hairy plague covered all, shiny and well-groomed in places, elsewhere greasy, like the mangy coat of an old dachshund. He drew Valentina to his side and said, See over there? where the river bank should be brown and muddy. All I can see is hair, drifting like kelp, Valentina replied. Oh, whatever will become of the metropolis? Don't worry, Jeremy said. These chaps at the Institute will tell us the whys and wherefores. And if they do not, I'll damn well discover them myself. Valentina smiled and Jeremy realized she admired his spontaneous enthusiasm. He smiled back. Damn, she was pretty. Headstrong, no doubt, but quite the charmer, and curvaceous as a cello, in her trousers and lace-trimmed combination. I believe this fresh air is doing you some good, he said, if the rosiness of your cheeks is anything to go by. She smiled again. Your moustache has piston grease on it. Jeremy wiped his upper lip, shrugged, then decided he could not be bothered to care about so trifling an embarrassment. <laughs> All part of the floating life, he joked. Curve let them off at the Institute, landing them on the upper steps, which retained only a thin fuzz, like the almost beard of a youth. A top-hatted gopher carrying a magnetic speaker-mat led them to the front door. "'Are you here to visit anyone in particular, sir?' "'Not really,' Jeremy replied. The gopher looked surprised, but let them pass anyway, whispering like a spy into his magnetic blarer. "'Telling the profs inside we're here and not to be trusted, no doubt,' 
Jeremy told Valentina. He felt annoyed. He was a pantomime, after all. Inside the building, a tall, dark man approached, his black frock coat and supercilious expression telling Jeremy that here was a man to frustrate their plans, if not crush them. Good morning, Jeremy said, clicking his heels and bowing to the man. I'm Jeremy Pantomile, and this is my travelling companion, Valentina Moondust. How may I assist you? the man asked. Dear fellow, the hairy plague, of course. Is it dangerous? We really aren't giving out that kind of information to the public. Jeremy sighed. So irritating. He shrugged, then said, Very well, my friends at the Suicide Club won't... The Suicide Club? You dine at Bedwood's house? Jeremy nodded. Then I must apologize. I didn't realize. My half-brother is Franklin Spar-Turney. You'll know him, of course. Yes, dear Franklin. Why, I saw him only last week. Then the man took him by the elbow and guided him into a lantern-lit corridor. Yes, yes, come along, both of you. I'm thither to Frenulum, assistant chief zoologist. But I believe I know you now. Aren't you the man who retrieved the Raja's selenograph from the Temple of Azure Lick? I say, Jeremy mumbled, affecting a modest stance. I suppose I did rather retrieve that one, yes. And is it true about the return of Farad? I don't know. He keeps his own counsel. The two looked embarrassed. Quite, quite. Valentina cleared her throat and said, Is London to be drowned in hair, Mr. Frenulum? We don't know. Our scientists are baffled. It seems too fantastic to have a basis in science. But what else are we to use in our investigations? Spiritualism? I think not. Then what will you do? As we speak, my research zoologists are taking specimens of the hair that we might analyze them with our microbooms. The nature of these specimens will determine the course of our work. But I must warn you, London is in great peril. After a few days, there will be shortages. Some of us fear a cockney uprising. Yes, they do get hungry, Jeremy observed. But that eventuality is some time off, or I'm no explorer. Tell me, do you need assistance here? Men of the Suicide Club are always welcome. Excellent. Then, my dear fellow, the good lady Moondust and myself are at your disposal. Hairy London by Stephen Palmer Narrated by R.D. Watson 